Hi there, this is your host Gary Turner from the Value Through Vulnerability podcast. I recently had David Marquet from Turn This Ship Around um, on the podcast. A really, really enjoyable conversation. David is clearly an excellent storyteller that comes with a wealth of experience. Um, and a number of topics that we, we discussed include the importance of leadership role modeling behaviors, especially around topics such as vulnerability, transparency, and trust. Without leaders um, role modeling those behaviors, it's very difficult for people to tap into that innovation and that latent creativity, which, as David references, is what is on people's shoulders. Those heads that are on people's shoulders are something that we are still struggling for some reason in 2018 to fully tap into. As such, one, reason, one way of doing that is actually to close the gap between seeing and speaking up. And that involves, of course, making psychological and organizational safety a priority. And part of one way of doing that is through um, David's model um, intent-based leadership, whereas we move the, the power and the, the, the intent to the individual doing the job and away from the leadership team. But there is so, so much in this, in this talk. You know, I've listened to this twice now before, before publishing it, and there's more and more takeaways that come out. So um, I really believe you're going to enjoy this discussion. I really enjoyed it, and uh, please do feedback to David and or I um, after listening, and uh, we hope that you find this interesting. Good evening and welcome to Value Through Vulnerability, a podcast dedicated to putting the human back into humanity. This evening I'm really grateful to have David Marquet joining me. Hi there, David. Hi Gary, how are you? Welcome all listeners. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, yeah, I'm really well this evening, enjoying 29 degrees of sunshine in the UK yeah. for the change, which is lovely. So just a bit of uh, background for, for those that are listening. So I reached out to you, David, as um, you had a very interesting podcast uh, with Mark Bidwell on innovation uh, ecosystem, where you, one of your big learnings that you changed your mind about was actually the role of emotion in the workplace or in an organizational context. And I'm really grateful for you to join me this evening to, to explore that a bit more. Thank you, looking forward to it. Great. Well, this podcast is very much around sort of three key themes, which is vulnerability, self-awareness and inclusion. And as someone myself that's had to really go through that journey the last 18 months dealing with my fears, such as being, such as being bullied, mental health challenges and a range of other things. I find it interesting that emotion is really coming to the forefront of a lot of organizational discussions right now. So if I could maybe start with just asking you, David, what, do you, what is your definition of vulnerability? What does that mean to you uh, just out of interest? Vulnerability is when we expose ourselves to the, the part of ourselves that's blind and we invite feedback from others. And the model that I, that I think is helpful here is called the Johari window. Mm -hmm. And basically, so it's a two by two matrix. So there's things we know about ourselves and there's things we don't know about ourselves and there's things that others know about us and there's things that others don't know about us. So in the quadrant, like what, so the, the, the visual things, oh, he's a middle-aged white guy. Okay, I know that about myself, others know that about myself. Then there's the stuff we hide from others that maybe we're embarrassed about. And then there's the stuff that others know about us 
that we don't realize. You know, I always, I, I, I say, you know, a lot, for example, maybe it's become a part of my speech that's a little bit lazy and I, I'm not even aware that I keep saying, yeah, right. Yeah. Right. You know, like, uh, you know, something like this, which, which comes across as unprofessional. Mm-hmm. So it's blind to me, but it's known to others. Mm-hmm. And then of course there's the part that neither we nor others know. And so the idea is, uh, for me, it's, there's a lot of asking for feedback. And so one of the things I like to do when we coach executives is to say, we put them on a 30-day feedback game where they say every day you need to ask feedback about one thing that you did today. Now, don't start by going to your spouse and saying, hey, what one thing can I do better to be a better spouse? It's, that's going to probably be too emotional. But start, hey, how was my driving? How, uh, you order coffee. You say, hey, how was I as a customer? Right? You know, flip it. Um, okay. You know, so the idea is, and it has to be personal, like these abstract surveys where we sort of depersonalize the feedback, makes it too easy not to pay attention to it. And the idea is to be, you know, how well, how well did I, how well did you feel I listened to you? How well did you feel I empathized with you? When you came up to me with this new idea, was I dismissive? Like, where was I on the scale of total dismissiveness versus curiosity? And they say, you know, I, I could tell you thought it was a dumb idea. You know, you, you really acted kind of dismissive. So I think vulnerability means we invite feedback about these more personal things of ourselves, which will give us opportunity to get better. And I can tell you for a long time, this is not a place where I wanted to go because I guess I kind of knew I, I, I came across as somewhat, you know, uh, somewhat of a know-it-all. Uh, but for, for, I spent 20 years in the Navy um, doing, did very well. But, you know, the idea of asking my Team, hey, did I come across as a know-it-all in this meeting? Like, I would never, I would have scared the pants off. (laughs) Going to combat against the enemy, that was fine. I I do that all day long. You know, I put my warrior hat on. But asking asking my team whether I was a good listener, (laughs) OMG. So there was a lot of unlearning and relearning that I had to do about being a leader and a human as a came up through the ranks. Oh, fantastic. No, th- th- thank you for being so open with that, David. Could, would you mind giving us a bit of an introduction, actually? Um, you know, I've, I've made a bit of an assumption as we start this um, call that everybody knows who you are. I'm sure many will listening. But can you give a bit of a view as to, you know, where you are at right now as David Marquet, you know, in terms of the, you know, the intent-based leadership that you've developed and how does vulnerability play into that model to some extent? Yeah, so thanks. Uh, our story is... I came up to the United States Navy. I was a new, and then because I was so good at telling people what to do, they made me a nuclear submarine commander. And at the last minute, after being trained for 12 months for one ship, I got transferred to another ship because the captain there uh, abruptly quit. And it was a ship that was different. And so I didn't know the intimate details like I normally would have. And again, uh, you start out with this mask of, well, I'm the captain and I need to know all the answers. I got to pretend like I know all the answers. And of course, I gave an order which 
could, it couldn't be performed. It was very simple order. It was basically shift into second gear on a particular engine that only had a single, it was only a one speed engine. And when it came to light that it couldn't be done, and not only that, but the officers, officer who I suggested this to ordered it knowing it because we had this world of do what you're told. Mm -hmm. Sure, we did the normal things. We say, yo, but you're empowered, and if you think it's a bad idea, please speak up. That's not what happens to people. And so I got my guys together. I said, we are in a not in a good way here because you're a do-what-I'm-told do, do uh, team, and I don't know the answers. And the solution we hit on was not for me to give better orders, but for me actually to stop giving orders. And so we made a deal. I'll be the submarine commander who doesn't give any command. And instead of leaning into you and telling you guys what to do, and then you guys reporting back what you did, I'm going to lean back and you guys are going to lean into me. And over and over and over again, if I did give an order, I always tried to give it in a way that made it as easy as possible. I always thought, you know, when the captain or the CEO says, hey, we should do this, there's culturally a very high bar to raising your hand and say, yeah, I'm not so sure about that. And so my thought was, if I ever did have to say that, that um, I wanted to really make a very low bar. I want the speed bump to be as low as possible mm -hmm. so that when people saw, because the problem isn't that they, they don't, they're not noticing things that are wrong. The problem is there's a gap between them noticing stuff and them speaking up. And this is where you as a vulnerable leader, you can close the gap because the problem is they're afraid of the cultural stigmas and all that kind of thing. So. I would say things like, yeah, well, this could be wrong if blah, 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 or I'm 90% sure or I'm 60% confident in this. But it could also be like we're going to go pick up a SEAL team, a special forces team, and we're planning for good weather. Well, you know, the weathermen figured this out. They never say it's not going to rain. They say, well, you know, it's like a 10% chance of rain. <laughs> so we, so we have, you know, there's a 10% chance of rough weather. So we say, yeah, the plan is for smooth weather, but it might actually be rough. And so we would try and open the door and I would do these, uh, this, I call this thinking out loud. Mm -hmm. And I would do it and they would do it. So they would, because what would happen is they'd be, they'd be thinking stuff, they wouldn't say stuff. And I'd jump in and say, well, how, are you thinking about this? Yeah, yeah, I'm thinking about that. Well, I don't know what you're thinking about because you're all keeping it inside your head. So there was this sort of low level chatter that happened on the submarine. Hey, you know, I'm thinking about turning left. What, how's that sound to everybody? Well, that'll be, you know, that, that's going to create a problem here because of the way the waves are coming and the ship's not balanced this way or, you know, there's a fishing boat, you know, whatever it is, but it created this low-level chatter. But it all started with me. If I didn't model the behavior, no one, I couldn't give them an order. Oh, I want you guys to be vulnerable and think out loud. You have to model it. And this to me was, it was basically like learning a new language, a language of uncertainty, a language of ambiguity, in a language of vulnerability. And I would say, hey, how am I doing? Am I telling you guys what to do? Because you know, we made this deal that I wouldn't tell them what to do. And I would, we, you know, uh, we got the World Cup going right now. And you see the soccer refs with those yellow cards. And I would have my guys, I would give them yellow cards and I would say, okay, this is my listening yellow card. If I'm not listening, you yellow card me. Wow. And they, they wouldn't want to do it, right? They, they would be like, oh, that's embarrassing. I'm going to throw a yellow card on the captain. But it's not a red card. It's not going to carry it away, right? <laughs> but but, but you, you explain and say, look, you're helping me. 
you're help, you reframe it like you're not calling me out. You're helping me because I want to be a better listener. Uh, so yeah, please yellow card me. And then, and then, and then I would like secretly tell a guy, Hey, say, listen, I'm just not going to listen to you. You yellow card me. I want to set an example to the crew that it's okay. And then he would do it. And I would in the control room and I'd say, okay, I'm sorry. I need to be a better listener. I would kind of make it uh, safe for everybody else. That's really, that's really powerful for me. And I think your, your last comment actually around safety. David, I think, would you, would you, do you think that's, you know, you mentioned about this gap between someone seeing something and actually speaking up about it. Is that sort of safety element? Is that that gap, do you think, to some extent? Yeah, it's so important. I mean, we can go through industrial accident after industrial accident or uh, failed uh, business model after failed business model. And it's never a case where no one saw it coming. Mm-hmm. It's that the people who saw it coming weren't weren't listened to or they didn't feel safe to speak up. Mm-hmm. Safety is so important. Now, the problem is we're used to an industrial age workplace. For 500 years, we were in this industrial revolution where we wanted people to do things. And so the structure in an industrial revolution organization is that one group of people does the thinking and a different group of people does the doing. And sometimes we give them, like, if you go to a construction site, you'll see white hard hats and blue hard hats. This is a legacy of the Industrial Revolution where the white hard hats are the leaders and the thinkers and the blue hard hats are the doers and the followers. We call them white collar, blue collar, or salary and union, or whatever it happens to be. And so we've um, codified this duality in our language and the problem is it's no longer helpful the problem is today like why not let the people who do the work decide on the work if we don't do that we are fundamentally in a coercive environment where the leader's job is to get people to do work that they're not in charge of deciding and so you're always sucked into this coercive manipulative and we don't call it that we say oh well, it's motivation or some something <laughs> like that but but it's fundamentally about manipulating people into doing something that they don't get to choose. So let's just let them choose. Let's create an environment where they can choose. Like we're all aligned in the same direction. We have clarity of purpose and unity of, uh, but we choose as much as possible. We have freedom of maneuver to choose how to get there. And I think this is the, how we get from these command and control environments to something like this is uh, where the magic happens. And uh, we did it on the submarine through language, just changing our language, the way we talk to each other, and just simple things like me saying, you know, I'm, you know what, this is our plan, but what I'm really worried about is this. Uh, what I'm really concerned about is this. What's keeping me up at night is this. And being able to uh, talk like that. What's your view? If we look over here in Europe in particular, so a lot of organizations I see and that, that I've worked with the last, last years, David, are, I think it's sort of, there's quite a lot of what I class as waste, whether it be wasted process time, wasted politics, you know, there's just a lot of human waste in our organizations right now. And I'm just yeah. wondering, do, 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 you, do you see that still in your sort of work with organizations? How did you manage waste back in the old sort of nuclear submarine days? Or was that actually one of the positives of command and control, you didn't have waste. No, that's, 
the greatest waste on the planet is what's sitting on top of everybody's shoulders. The greatest waste that we have are all the ideas, the creativity, and the passion. The ideas in our brains and the passion in our hearts in humans that is untapped because we throw them in environments where we say, okay, sit here, here's your boss, do what you're told. That's the message. Mm -hmm. And we're not, you know, we're at a place where things are moving so fast and the world is so complex. If anyone still believes that there's some group of experts that's going to somehow solve all of humanity's problems and tell the rest of us what to do, Hopefully the last few years have disabused us all of that idea. You know, we need everybody out there thinking. And, and so like lean is about reducing waste, but the way the waste that lean's reducing is sort of this, you know, visual waste, time process waste. But but what I really worried about was the wasted human uh, potential to be creative, solve problems. There's a quote in one of Jack Welch's book, and this, he's one of my anti-heroes because GE just got dropped from the Dow because the things that they did uh, were great for while he was there, but it didn't work in the long run. And uh, there's a quote where one of the workers says, hey, you, you paid for my hands for 25 years, but you could have got my brain for free, but you didn't. Wow. Because of the way you treat us. That's not the way it's told in the book, but, but that's the subtext because you didn't activate, you don't activate by telling us what to do and being the smartest guy in the room, you don't activate people's brains. Like, well, well if, if I come to work and get told what to do, I can just leave my brain at home. Mm -hmm. So yeah, the, we have huge waste and it's the most important resource on the planet. And as a result, organizations, um, there's a bias for weight, you know, in organizations that are permission-based organizations, which is all of them, there's a bias towards waiting to do what you're, you have to wait until you say here, yes, before you move out. But in an intent-based organization, the answer is yes, unless there's a no. And that distinction seems subtle, but it's huge. Because you say, hey boss, we intend to change the formula. We, we intend to give this client a discount. We intend to launch the product on time. We intend to add these two new features. And if you just don't get it, you just get no, the boss doesn't answer the email, it doesn't matter. There's no one's waiting. They just do it. And there's a lot of transparency. Transparency builds trust. Transparency over time is what is the equation for trust. Trust is very important. You gotta be consistent and trustworthy. If you, like never say the words, oh, trust me. If you feel like you might need to say the words, trust me, you need to re-examine your behavior because that, what, what that means is you getting a sense that you're not being trusted by your team, which means you're not trustworthy. So stop telling the other people to quote, trust you in the blind, start acting trustworthy. And this is maybe something you can yellow, you give your team a yellow card. Hey guys, I got, I'm getting a feeling you guys don't really trust me. So I want you to yellow card me when I do something that erodes your ability to trust me. Boom. How cool would that be?
That's, that's can, can you give us some examples, David, uh, or maybe just give us a little overview of intent-based leadership as it is for the, for the listeners? You know, I appreciate it's a, a, a bigger topic than just this call, but can you give a little bit of insight or some examples of how effective intent-based leadership is compared to this old out-of-date model? Yeah, so the idea of intent-based leadership is people say it's a language-based approach where we create an environment for people to be at their best. It's the leader's responsibility to create that environment, not tell people what to do. And so it, what happens is it sounds like this. All day people are going, hey, here's my, here's my plan. Here's what I intend to do. Here's what I see. Here's what I think is going on. Here's what I intend to do to, to deal with this. And there's this, this sense of energy and a bias for action. And we've uh, this is what happened on the submarine, but we now... And I, and I wrote about in my book, Turn the Ship Around. But what we see now is corporations who are doing this are having some amazing uh, results. Uh, we, a major oil company said, hey, you've sa this has saved us tens of millions of dollars because we're making better decisions because we're hearing all the voices before the decision. Before we only hear the loud people, now we hear everybody. Uh, a lady who worked for, she was an operations manager at McDonald's, lost 50 pounds in one year because she was so, she had so much less stress in her life. Instead of running around, telling people what to do, going from store to store, checking on them, they came to her, they leaned into her. You, you know, people lean upwards rather than lean down. Um, and, you know, another, another company uh, doubled their revenue and their, a number of employees in three years. Another company um, tripled. This is a revenue collection company, like a bad debt company. Tripled the amount of debt they collected with a smaller group. Another company. This is a call center uh, for a major global bank, and they lost on average three and a half people every month quit. And they implemented this. So, uh, you know, a call center is one of those places where usually they're sort of the it's sort of low, low pay, do what you're told, here's your script, follow it, group of people. And um, when the head of the call center started implementing this, other people were very skeptical. Oh, like those, those people only have high school degrees. Those people, those people, right? They'll never get it wrong. And he said, he threw out some of the silly metrics they had, like they would time how long they were on the call. And he said, you know what? I just want you to solve the customer's problem. And after you solve that problem, make sure they don't have another problem. I don't want the customer to have to call back for six months. Just solve their problems. And, uh, and they had to go through some training so that, the, the, they, that these people actually knew all the options they had for solving these problems. But the end result was, uh, there was some phenomenal length of time. It was like 10 days in a row when they only received 10 out of 10 on feedback. And wow. there was a six month window. Last I checked with them, they had, go, they had gone for six months where zero people quit. So six times three and a half, that's what, 18, 21. So that's 21 people they didn't have to hire, 21 people that they didn't have to train, 21 people who didn't start at the bottom of the organization. But more importantly, it's 21 people who felt so crappy about their job that they quit. And not just 21 people, but the whole team. Because we gave them the ability, there are three things here. Number one, they have the control over their jobs to choose how to interact with the customer. Number two, 
They had the technical skills. They knew what the bank could do, and they knew the limits. And number three is they understood what they were trying to do, uh, which is we call clarity. And number four, they were part of a team. So I guess there's four things. Mm -hmm. but, um, and, but we see this over and 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 over again, which is when we trust people, and, and, and it always goes the leader trusts first. We don't say, oh, prove you're ready for more responsibility, then I'll give it to you. That's not what leaders do. That's what bosses do. Leaders say, no, I'm going to trust you with a little more responsibility. I'm going to see how you do with that. And then people grow into that role because they're like, oh, my gosh, this is amazing. Like, I don't want to let anyone else down. People say, oh, well, there's got to be accountability. Yeah, but you know what? You don't need it because this, they hold themselves accountable to so much higher than what you could. Like, oh, you did a bad job there. Yeah, like that never happens. What happened to me is like they come into my stateroom. Oh, I feel so bad. I let the team down. And I'd be like, hey, oh, hey, it's okay. We didn't kill anyone. It's not that bad. You know, we're still here. <laughs> okay, go back to work. <laughs> I'm, you, you really must be onto something because I'm just like blabbing on and on and on. It's good. Good, 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 good passion, David. Good passion. Love yeah, it. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Me, maybe I'm, yeah. Let me, let, me, let me stay quiet for a minute and flip it no, back. No, it's, it's totally perfect. Well, what's really interesting to me, actually, you spoke about the sort of, you know, the clarity piece and the sort of technical skills. What, what, what I'm sensing and what I'm hearing, and please correct me, is uh, it's almost like you're trying to give enough freedom to, the, you know, to your team. You trust them enough within, let's say, this flexible boundary that they can just get on and do the job. You know, it's not a free-for-all. It's not chaos. It's like, here's, here's the boundaries. You operate where you want within those boundaries. And if you think you need them flexed, come and tell me. Or show me why they need to be flexed. Structure gives freedom. This is something people don't understand. Chaos does not give freedom. Structure <laughs> gives freedom. And so you got, as the leader, you got to create the right structure that allows maximum freedom. I mean, we both live in liberal democracies. And, uh, you know, so it's the structure of our founding uh, documents going back to the Magna Carta, which allows the freedom that we enjoy today. If those, if no one wrote that stuff down and we just talked about it and it was oral history, there would not be freedom because then we'd be subjected to hijacking. And um, so the leader's job. There was a story where there was a school that had a fence around the playground in an urban environment, and the kids played all throughout the playground right up to the edge of the fence. And psychologists came by. This is back in the 70s or so when this idea of fences were bad. And so the fences are bad. we got to take down the fence. And so the school did that. And you know where the kids played? Right in the middle of the playground because they didn't know where the safety boundary was. And so if you don't know how far you can go towards the street, street to be safe, that does not create risk embracing, a more experimental and more learning mindset. What it creates is a risk adverse mindset and people just play in the middle of the playground. So it's the boundaries. Now, don't make a fake boundary. You know, if the playground is, is you know, 10 square miles, don't pretend like it's two hectares or something because then, you know, then you just shot yourself in the foot. 
But you gotta, you know, knowing where the boundaries are allows people to play right up to the edge. That's why we put, you know, that's why we mark the edge of the football pitch. People can play right up to the edge. Yeah. Imagine a game where it was like, yeah, it's somewhere over there, but we're not going to tell anyone. <laughs> 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 How would that be? <laughs> Tiring, I think. <laughs> yeah, like, no, like, ref blows the wheel. Oh, you're out of bounds. What? <laughs> Sounds like you're creating a new game, David. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, no, yeah, chaos. <laughs> One of the things I've heard you speak about on, on previous um, podcasts and other discussions is, uh, uh, you know, a comment I really believe in as well is all investments in people are long term. Yeah. You mind expanding on that a little bit because it, it's coming through anyway for me from our conversation today. But, you know, it's a really strong pointed statement. I'd like to explore that a bit with you. So I think there's a strong tendency when you think you know the answer and the team comes up and says, hey, what, what should we do here? You know the answer. You just tell them because it gives us a sense of progress and maybe a sense of self-importance. And um, it's very expedient, but we're not building leaders. We're not helping our team learn how to think like us and obviate our own role in the organization. So, and, I, and so one thing that holds us back is that if you make a commitment to invest in your people, it's going to be a, it's going to be two things, which humans don't like. Number one, it's going to be long-term because you don't know how long it's going to take. You're going to consistently and persistently ask someone who comes to you and they say, Hey, tell me what to do. Tell me what to do. And you're going to say, yeah, what do you think? What do you think? What do you think? What would you do? If I weren't here, what would you do? And you know, I don't know how long it's going to take for them to move from tell me what to do to here's what I think to here's what I would do to get out of my way. Here's what I'm doing. Um, and number two, it's uncertain because they may not, you know, it may not work out. Mm -hmm. So on the one hand, if I delay the answer and I let the team struggle with the answer and I've developed, I make an investment in developing leaders, I, I'm betting on this, long-term uncertain payoff for the future versus if I just tell them what to do, I'm, I, I'm making a small bet or I, I'm making a small win where we're going to get the production work done. But if the behavior is always to just go with those small wins, then I'm never out of, I, I, I'm just on a gerbil wheel or a hamster wheel or whatever wheel you want to be on. <laughs> but, but, but the idea is we never, we never build a team that can think for themselves. We're just building a dependency on the leader. Interesting. So how, how, did, how does that play out with your intent-based leadership you know, model or, or program then? Is it, is it, could you give an example? You gave, you gave four or five examples of the success of the program that you run. Is there, is, do they tend to be long-term programs then that you offer? Or is it sort of milestone-based? You know, how, 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 how is it sort of structured? I appreciate it's tailored to the, to the organization. But. So our, our feeling is that uh, leadership is a language. It's, it's, it's how do we run the meeting? It's when, when you come up to me and say, hey, I have an idea. What are the next, very next words out of my mouth? And then when you say, give me an idea, hey, we should delay product release. And in my head, I'm like, no, no, we're not going to delay release. Great, but what words come out of my mouth? Do I say, 
No, no, no. Let me explain why. Let me take this as a teaching moment. I mean, how annoying is that? Uh, but I say instead, like, yeah, uh, tell me about that. You know, if I act, if, if the words I say are based on an underlying curiosity, or I don't even care if they're based on underlying curiosity or not. If the words I say invite curiosity, then I'm happy. Mm-hmm. And so if you believe like we do, that leadership is a language, then you need to learn it like a language. You would not go to a one day offsite for French and then come home and say, yeah, I learned French. I went to a one day offsite, but this is how we do leadership. What you would do is you would practice a few words every morning and we feel you need to practice it in the environment that you're in. So what we do is, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a little bit of training, but it's a lot of practice and the whole industry is, 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 is against us. <laughs> I'll give you an I'll give you an example. When we go to do seminars, people want to know, well, what are the learning objectives? I said, well, there's no learning objectives. What are you talking about? I said, let me ask you, if you went out for soccer practice, would you say, what's the learning objective? The ball needs to go into that goal. Like we all know that, right? It's practice. It's it, we have we're gonna have some practice objectives. Like we're gonna practice kicking it with our offside foot. We're going to practice heading the ball, but it's practice. Okay, I can explain heading in one second. Use, a, use your head to hit the ball. Well, it may be more complicated than that, but you know, basically, the learning is the gap is not the learning. The gap is in the practice. So, uh, what we do is encourage uh, com- big companies to develop their own uh, coaches who would then sort of reinforce this behavior. But really, if the leader models the behavior, uh, it cascades down through the organization. But it's really just a language. It's just practice learning a new language. But it's also um, personal because we have to change the words that we say. It, it, it's not one of these things that happens out there like, oh, they're doing a reorg to me. A lot of these things start with reorgs. Um, and I think there are some organizational design implications, but we always like to start with the language because you don't know what the redesign looks like until you practice the language. That's, that's really powerful. And yeah, I, I can agree. I, I, got, um, I got French at school level, David, and um, even after two years <laughs> of doing it, I'm still awful. So it's just one day. It's definitely not going to work. Well, it's worse for me because my last name is French, and so people expect me to at least say, you know, merci. Uh, but um, yeah, it's dismal. It's dismal. <laughs> I'm really conscious. I'm conscious of time from your side. Yeah. So, just if I may wrap up, maybe with a, a couple of questions with you, um, if that's okay. Rapid fire. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, a couple of rapid fire ones. So, if you're going to, if you're going to say from your experience, your you know your your perception right now, what is the number one leadership challenge that you believe? we're seeing right now, regardless of size of organization, regarding of the cultural setting of the organization, what do you think the number one leadership challenge is that we're, we're facing right now? It's, it's figuring out how to replace command and control or industrial age leadership with something new. And everyone is trying different things. We don't know what it looks like. I'll tell you one thing, it's not, it's not structure free and it's not hierarchy free and it's not a free for all. This is not, we'll play with that at the fringe just so we know how far beyond the solution we can go. But 
Uh, I, don't, I don't believe it's going to end up being that way, but um, it'll be creating environments where people can be at their best and unlocking this, this, this thing that sits on top of everybody's shoulders. Brilliant. I love that. There's so much discussion. It sounds crazy, doesn't it, in 2018, but we're trying yeah. to rehumanize the world of work. It's just like, oh I my love God. That. It's, it's exactly. incredible. Yeah. <laughs> And stop calling humans resources, for God's sake. Yeah. Or human capital, but don't start me on that one. That's it. <laughs> yeah. So look, just to wrap up, Dave, where can people get hold of you? Sort of website, you know, Twitter. Yeah, handle. So we're at um, www.davidmarquet.com. The book is Turn the Ship Around. We have a training and leadership partner in the UK. It's the only certified one globally. Uh, they're up in... They're headquartered up in Edinburgh. Uh, Remarkable is their name. You can go to their their site, Remarkable, and in Edinburgh, and uh, they're the ones who deliver our uh, bigger engagements in uh, the UK and Europe. So, and we have a uh, one of the things that we do is uh, we have these little one minute reminders. They're called leadership nudges. Just a little nudge. It's a little reminder, and that we have a YouTube channel, leadership nudges on the website you can enroll in this uh course where we have over 200 of them now and they're just we really try hard to get it 60 seconds or less a little snippet of one one of these concepts or stories about intemperance leadership oh that's fantastic and are there, are there any uh any any signs you're coming to europe anytime soon for any speaking gigs david out of interest oh yeah yeah i'm always coming to europe i'm uh so here's something exciting we're doing we're building a um we're building a le immersive leadership simulation okay it's a vr game <laughs> oh wow yeah a really a vr game where four people play in a submarine they have to talk to each other and they have to share information they can't hide stuff and they have to admit their mistakes and that kind of thing and oh, we're gonna be doing some uh uh we're gonna be doing some we're gonna run uh, i'm gonna be in moscow next month doing some beta testing on that and uh in the fall i've got a conference in uh i think a couple agile conferences in northern europe and there's a conference in berlin uh i'll be going to if my my twitter and that kind of stuff is l david marquet at l for lewis l david marquet and i invite you to connect with me there or connect with me on LinkedIn, and we post, hey, I'm going to be heading over um, to XYZ Conference, typically. That's fantastic. Well, I'll, I'll add all of these uh, contacts, references to the, to the show notes for the podcast, David, and I really appreciate you sparing 40 minutes today. Sure, yeah. Best of luck to all your listeners. Let us know how it goes. Will do. Thanks very much, David. Cheers now. Cheers. Hi there, here's your host, Gary Turner, just wrapping up what I believe to have been a really engaging and really, really interesting and actually quite exciting um, podcast with David Marquet. The reason I'm excited about it is that for someone with David's experience and someone with the profile of David is really talking about base humanity as the biggest differentiator to moving us on from where we are today to what the future of work could look like. I think in, in amongst all of the talk around holacracy, sociocracy, and these new ways of working, which are great, and they are what are pushing the envelope on the boundaries, as Dave refers to, of organizational design and organizational culture and structure. 
at the end of the day, as he references, structure leads to freedom. And that is something I've taken away massively um, from this discussion. So I'm big on the freedom of work, big on um, empowering people to do their best work. But sometimes I can even fall over to, to that, that chain of thought where I'm thinking, actually, if we just give people free reign, surely they will be able to make the best of what they have. But no, there needs to be an element of structure uh, which, which comes in. I think this is reinforced by a number of self-organisation um, podcasts I've listened to recently as well. So that's a really big takeaway for me. Also, this comment from David around, we need to have a bias for action rather than a bias for inaction. So that, you know, that means that people need to feel truly empowered. They need to feel that that intent is with them and that they are trusted and they are able to make mistakes to make what they might view to be silly, silly remarks or silly suggestions, because that's where the nuggets of innovation and creativity are going to come from. And as such, we really do need to start looking at rehumanizing the world of work. I know Dave and I laugh about that um, on this particular podcast, but it's true. You know, the biggest waste I, I believe, and David fully reinforces, is us as human beings. Um, you know, there's still too much politics. There's still too much lighting home faking in, in the world of work. And we just need to try and reduce that um, such that we can turn around the productivity statistics that we see and basically just allow humans to be the human beings that they are, enjoy their work, go home safe and actually spread those ripple effects of positivity um, to their families and to wider society. Another big takeaway for me is that the, the gap is not in the learning, the gap is in the practicing. And this is really interesting for, for me in particular. If we look at this from a learning development point of view, there's been many discussions for many years now talking about how do you actually measure the impact of learning development interventions. So you have return on investment, which is very difficult. We're talking about human beings. You then have return on expectation, which is, you know, it, it's a measure which can be, you know, can be introduced, but it's still moving more towards, you know, how do you prove that investing in human beings is worthwhile? Whereas what David talks about, which I think is far more powerful, is practicing. So actually, you know, let's not try and justify the hell out of everything because it's a human being. You know, ultimately, you know, human beings are creative. They are not this human capital or this resource that David doesn't like the, the, the term around. What we're talking about here, and I really believe this, is the human beings are just human beings that have a latent potential to be phenomenal. They have a ball of energy that is not being tapped into in our current um, workplaces in many instances and if we could just untap that energy source there is exponential growth in every human being that works in our organization regardless of the job they're doing and i firmly firmly believe that so there's a lot of talk about exponential technology of course and that's that's very very important there's exponential opportunity within us human beings as well you know if you look at the gallup stats of one in three being fully engaged that's a threefold increase in every human being that we could potentially tap into if we can just push the intent to every human being that works for us. And a final wrap up for me, um, and this is just a Gary reflection, but ultimately what David spoke about quite early on in this podcast is in essence, he found it easier to go to war against the enemy than to ask his team for feedback. So I just wanna hold that thought there for a second. It's easier to go to war with other human beings than it is to ask for feedback in many organizational settings. That is massive for me. And I think that's something that every one of us needs to reflect deeply on because this is not a unique situation. And I'm very, very impressed by David's humility, honesty and openness to share insights like that with us because that really strikes at the core of what this podcast is all about, the whole value for vulnerability podcast, which is we need to be able to bring more of our true self 
we need to be able to make mistakes. We need the freedom to operate, but within safe boundaries, such that we can make the maximum impact at work, at home, and on society at large. So on that note, I thank David deeply for his time. Um, please do reach out to Remarkable as well, which is the UK and Europe partner of uh, David's Intent-Based Leadership Programme. You can find Peter Russian on Twitter, um, who heads up Remarkable. And uh, yeah, please do offer some feedback. You know, this has been an, an absolutely awesome chat for me and I think brings together an awful lot of um, leadership and organisational design thinking that many of us see and hear about right now. All the very best for now.